Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and this is our interview show where we sit down with a guest, think about their work and then unpack the rest. But before we do introduce our guest, I have to say I have brought along my dear friend Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi, how are you and why is it not Friday yet? I'm doing great and super excited to be here. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's uh, 21 degrees Fahrenheit here, which means that I've turned into a human popsicle. But the good news is, is that we have a podcast to keep us warm and fun people to talk to. <laughs> well, I am super excited to be joining you and talking to Aileen. I can't wait. Unicorn is just this term that we've all been saying for years and years. And just to get to talk about how it came about, how it's evolved, what's ahead. I'm excited. And you just let the cat out of the bag. We do have Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures today. She is a managing partner. And before she did 10 years at Cowboy, she was at Kleiner Perkins for 12 or 13 years. Aileen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. So first of all, you were up late finishing this massive post that just went up on TechCrunch today. I'm curious, just because I'm a writer, when did the process of putting it together start and when did the process of putting it together end? First of all, I have so much respect for you all, dude, because I write like a snail. Ah. And so we actually started working on it last summer. Wow. Pulling the data together. And then, you know, you have to constantly refresh the data because obviously valuations change, public market caps change, all kinds of stuff. But just giving us time to kind of marinate on what does the initial data pool look like, what's popping out, and then continue to go back at it and think about what could be learned. So yeah, I'm glad this is a podcast because you would see I have like very dark circles under my ass right now. Yeah, we were joking earlier that if you're not tired, your job must be amazing and we should all get one of those. (laughs) But the reason why this is so exciting is we've just passed the 10-year anniversary of the time you wrote the original piece that when you kind of called startups that reached a billion dollars in value unicorns and kind of brought that term into, I would say, our, our shared lexicon. First of all, how has it been 10 years? That's insane. I remember when that piece came out. Ah, but there's also a lot of stuff that we want to talk about. So Marianne, I want to give you the baton first as we pick through some data points because there's a lot to get to. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, we've seen a massive growth, of course, in the number of unicorns since you first wrote that original piece, Aileen. One thing that I'm curious about is when you first came up with that, before we get into the data, did you think it was going to become so, I guess, popular or mainstream or so used in the VC and startup world? No, not at all. Basically, I had this relatively new fund with very few investments. So I kind of had what you would, like in the olden days, you'd call like an open dance card, right? And, you know, and I was talking to LPs and other GPs about, you know, anecdotally, I've heard that when you put together a fund, I think one of the original founders of Kleiner called the first fund, two peaches in a bucket of piss. (laughs) Basically, the idea was like, anecdotally, you invest in 25 companies in a fund, and it really is like two or three that matter that wind up being these breakout hits, these outliers that are worth a ton and other ones don't matter. So I went around talking to people about, is that that the case? Like, I'd love to see the data. And people were like, yeah, it sounds about right. I don't track the data or I don't have the data. And, you know, our industry is so big. We manage billions of dollars. I was like, how could we not have the data? I kind of want to see it. And so I just started hand pulling it and putting it into a spreadsheet about if I had started 10 years earlier, what are the best companies I could have possibly invested in? And how would I have found them? Who were the founders? Where did they go to school? How did they meet each other? Where did they work before? Was this the original idea? Did they pivot? How much did they raise? And so I just kind of started collecting the data. 
over months. And so we called it the learning project. I had interns help me with it. And I mean, the industry was so much smaller back then. And I knew I still know a lot of the founders and there wasn't a lot of data. So I would actually call people. Like I think I called Drew House and I was like, hey, how did you guys meet? Was this the original idea? How many other ideas? Did you ever have a summer job? Did you ever start anything before? Like you could actually, it was a really small data set, relatively speaking. And then I shared the learning project post with a bunch of friends. And I had substituted in the word unicorn because... Basically, the post was doing about researching companies that were less than 10 years old, that were VC-backed and US-based. And that's just a really awkward phrase to write over and over again (laughs) in a post. And so we needed a shortener. And so I thought about like home run, Godzilla, monster hit, you know, like and unicorn just made it so much more fun to read. And also, I think it captured that kind of like that elusive magic when things come together. Because as you know, there are so many incredible people in the tech industry who work so hard at building a successful company and sometimes it just doesn't come together. Right. It's a very special thing when you actually are able to build that much value. And also, as we now know, keep it. So at the time, there were only 39 unicorns, right? Yeah. I mean, that just seems inconceivable to me. Um, And now there's 532? 32. Okay. So how much faster was that growth than you expected? Oh my gosh. That's partially why actually in this piece, I tried to think more about what might happen next. Because I think at the time, I didn't think, oh, how many more will there be in the future? And if I had pushed myself, I don't think I would have thought, oh, 30% year over year growth. So we'd have (laughs) 532 in 10 years. So it's pretty astounding. I want to make a small point. Yeah. People who are listening may have heard unicorn counts north of a thousand. Different sites have different kind of counters and so forth. The difference there is that Aileen's team is tracking, as she said earlier, U.S.-based companies Mm -hmm. versus the entire world. That's right. Both are valid ways to go about things. Just clarifying for folks who are like, wait a minute, I thought it was 1,300. Just talking U.S. companies here. That's right. And also less than 10 years old. It's a totally different exercise to count every company that was ever started that became worth a billion dollars. And so we look at ones that are just 10 years old or less. And in that group that we're discussing, there has been a a really interesting shift in what they do. Because in the first Unicorn post, there was a lot of consumer companies represented. And now when we look at this new data set, I think you said 78% are actually enterprise focused or B2B focused, if you will. I'm shocked by that enormous flip. And I'm curious if we've now reached a point where we're too balanced towards enterprise versus consumer, or if originally we were just lucky to see that many consumer wins to make the data appear as it once did. So... Marianne and I were just talking before we started about, you know, being three cycle kind of folks in the tech industry. I joined right before the dot-com boom and then lived through the Great Recession. And then we just are living through a third cycle. So we have seen the pendulum swings, right? There are booms where there's just something in the air and founders come up with these incredible consumer ideas. And there tend to be a couple of years where there's just tons of interesting consumer things. And then things kind of quiet down. So I am very excited that maybe consumers are going to come back in the next couple of years because it has been relatively quiet versus in 2013 when like there was just so much activity in consumer. And then I think enterprise was quite ripe. Mm. One of the big standouts in the original analysis was how capital efficient the enterprise companies had been. So basically, if you invested a dollar into an enterprise software company, you would have gotten 26 back from the first set. So it's like, wow. Investing in enterprise software seems like a really good way to make money. And that's a pretty attractive thing because the margins are great in enterprise software historically. And also the customer retention is a very sticky product. And so there's a lot of attractiveness. And then plus cloud, I I could go on about all the attractive qualities of enterprise software companies. But I think there's a bunch of reasons. Has that changed dramatically? Because the data you guys put out said that 
the capital efficiency for enterprise companies fell from 26x to 7x over the timeline that we're discussing, which is a simply insane amount of compression in terms of value created. And I can't figure out if this means that, you know, unicorns today in the enterprise world are just forced to spend more on customer acquisition if net retention has become simply less possible to achieve. Or did something else change in how we build these companies? Because if it was 26x to 20, I would say, okay, prices have changed, whatever. But 26 to 7, what broke? Yeah, I know it's fascinating. I think it did, because it was a rising tide, there was a lot more competition. So people had to move faster than ever, right? They spent more on marketing than ever. They hired more engineers than ever. They, you know, go to market, all those things. But money was basically almost free. And then funds, which we write about in the piece as well, when interest rates were so low, investors, LPs, were looking for places to be able to invest money where they could generate a better return. And they looked at venture and historical venture returns and said, hey, that looks like a really good place to park a bunch of money. And so they called venture funds and said, I'd like to give you more money. And venture firms said, yes, I would like to take your money. (laughs) And so venture firms broke records in how much they raised, both in terms of pace. Funds used to raise every three years. And then because people were saying, I'd like to give you more money. And then you look at the public markets and all those companies were flying so high. Investors are like, I'd like to get in early. Rather than having to buy the public price, let me buy the supposedly cheaper private price. So I'm going to put a bunch of money into venture capital so I can get in earlier. And so funds swelled and then they deployed it. We funded, I mean, that's part of the reason why we have so many exciting unicorns is because there was so much available capital and companies got big fast. But one of the companies that we actually missed in the original analysis was Viva, which Mm. I admire so much because they were crazy capital efficient. I think Viva raised $4 million and basically got profitable on that. And it's a multi-billion dollar company, which is for the investors and for the founders and for the employees who work at those companies, you make so much more when you have less dilution and you raise less. So I'm not saying that every company has to be built that way or should be. I mean, look at how much Amazon raised over the years and how much money they lost in their early years. And that was a very smart strategy. So how much you raise is a strategy. And I think people didn't talk about it as much as they possibly maybe should have or could have in the boom years. You also mentioned another phrase I had not heard before in your piece called Zerpicorns. (laughs) Yeah. Did you like that? I I like that. And I I wanted to hear you explain a little bit more about what a Zerpicorn is. So a Zerpicorn is Z-I-R-P. So basically, we went through a period in 2021, heading into 2022, when interest rates were almost zero. And that just changed a lot of things. So it did make the cost of capital very low. And so it kind of changed. And then a lot of, you know, in software and how a lot of financial investors think about making investments is actually through a discount cash flow. And the interest rate is basically the rate at which you discount the value of future cash flows. So when the interest rate is high, it really changes the equation versus when the interest rate is almost zero. So how you think about investments is just a completely different mindset in ZERP. And an astoundingly high percentage of the companies that are in our new unicorn analysis basically raised their rounds when interest rates were almost zero. And therefore, tech public market caps were flying super high. Mm-hmm. Companies were trading at 30 times, 50 times, in some cases, 80 times revenue. And so then people looked at that and said, okay, maybe that's what I can get in the private market. And so companies you know, with a million, $5 million in revenue were worth a billion dollars in some cases. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. So the, of this set of 532, there are a lot of Zerpicorns, companies whose last round valuation is, was basically set in that period. And it's kind of shockingly 93% what we call papercorns, which is privately valued unicorns that have not yet been bought or gone public. That's a lot. 
Yes, it's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's an so- enormous number. I mean, it's almost a little bit scary to think about. And part of the reason why we are seeing so many papercorns is because exit volume as a percentage of total unicorns in the data set has gone down dramatically. Yeah. I forget the actual data points you guys said, but it seemed to have flipped entirely. I think from 66 to 7%. Yeah, 66 to 7 percentage-wise, that's a, that's a huge drop. So on the one hand, I think there's a lot of sober lessons in the data, <laughs> but there's also a lot of goodness. So when we crunch the number and look under the hood of this set and how many are paper corns, how many are zebra corns, how capital inefficient a lot of companies have been, how companies are kind of running out of runway... And also looking at how many fallen unicorns there are, how many shutdowns there have been just in the past year, we think this herd will slim down quite a bit. So two, three years from now, the companies in this batch, a lot of them will fall out. Unicorns. Maybe 400. Yeah, zombie corns. (laughs) Sorry, people may be groaning out there. You know, this set may slim down to 400 or 350 companies, but still 350 or 400 is a lot of unicorns. It's still... 10x. And these are going to be thriving, healthy companies that will go public or will be bought that will grow into or beyond their valuations. That speaks a lot to how much the tech industry has grown and will continue to grow and have impact on society. I want to double click on slimming down because one data point you guys had was that 40% of unicorns are currently trading under their $1 billion valuation on secondary markets. So one way to read slimming down would be that they'll just become worth less than a billion. Another way to slim down is to die or to combine with another company and kind of Mm -hmm. live on as part of a, a hybrid entity. So by slim down, when we talk about that herd reduction, what's the mechanism that you think is going to be the leading way we see that number fall? Well, one, I don't know what is going to be leading. I'd love to hear what you all think. I mean, one way is people hit the wall. And I I saw a friend who's a lawyer at Fenwick and West last week. And I said, you know, what are you all seeing? You're sitting around a lot of board tables. And the lawyer said, yeah, I've got four companies about to hit the wall. Oh, man. Yeah. And then folks are going to try and do recaps. There is a lot of what we call dry powder sitting on the sidelines. Venture funds raise a lot of money and they haven't invested it because in the piece we note, a lot of people kind of froze over in 2023 and didn't make a lot of investments. But, you know, investors are weighing, should I invest in something that's been around the block and has had some challenges versus something fresh? And some prior investors in those companies may not want to see the markdown or the down round. The founders and the management team may not want to take the hit. Mm -hmm. And so I think founders have to be really sober about how hard it is to get a recap or a down round done and give yourself lots of time. Just be really open-minded to figuring out what your options are and don't be too attached to the past. Speaking of founders, unfortunately, we didn't see a lot of change in the composition of founding teams compared to 10 years ago. We're not seeing, I guess, how many were actually founded by women, for example? Do you do you remember? More than before, which was good. Mm-hmm. And with, there are also some, there are more female CEOs than before, which is good, but it's still quite pathetic. I think there's more CEOs named like John, Andrew, and Mike than there are female CEOs. So that's not good. <laughs> so if you are a minority person of color, woman, other kind of underrepresented minority out there, like you should be a founder. Like we're rooting for you. And I think that there's more openness and more support than ever. There's so much research to show that diverse teams do deliver better results, especially in trying times. So I think when you're putting together a founding team, it's like being cognizant of different backgrounds and putting together a team that's going to help you come up with the best decisions and recruit the best team. Yeah. I was not surprised to see the data Mm -hmm. on gender diversity in particular, but it was just a little bit dispiriting because, you know, I'm only a two-cycle venture reporter. (laughs) I don't have the third cycle, so I only have such historical context under under my wings. But we've been talking about this 
for so long now. I know. And yes, there are some gains. Like, for example, if you look at mixed gender teams, the amount of capital that they're raising is going up. But all female teams just don't raise that much capital. And we keep talking about it, charting it. I'm tired of writing that post, you know? Like, I just... I know. I would love to write a post that was like, holy crap, look at how fast this data is changing. Women raise so much money. We've really turned the corner. But instead, it's this conversation again. So, Aileen, looking ahead... Yes. Is there any reason to think that as we head into this next cycle, coming off of the last one, that will make material progress on the diversity front when we consider unicorns and also, I would say, smaller companies? I would say the optimism I have is in looking at the geographical spread in the sector spread. You know, there are now unicorns for farmers, for nurses, for upskilling hourly workers in factories. Like there's just, there have been businesses that, you know, the original set was such a tight group of just very generalized software that was kind of one size fit all for all kinds of customers. And the markets are global now and industries generally have not had good software. Mm -hmm. And so people with specific information, specific insights about how accountants workflow looks or how business works in a hospital or how finance works for, you know, they're basically coming up with new software and actually AI is going to change the game even more to actually build really delightful, innovative, incredibly efficient software for specific markets. And those markets, the software is going to be so much better than what everyone has. The adoption is going to build really big companies. And so I think what's really telling about this set is how much the herd spread. And when you also look at founder backgrounds, the founders, I mean, there are only 100 founders in our original set. And now there's 1,300. Wow. 1,300. And they, they're no longer all technical founders. They're actually not nearly as tech. So there's this myth that you have to find some guy who went to Stanford and studied computer science to be a founder. Like The data shows that's actually not who the founders of this set of unicorns are. And I can think that will continue to change. So the, like, the more diverse backgrounds, I think, is going to build all kinds of different companies. I think also just the fact that we saw venture capital in the last cycle really spread out across the world. I mean, I was covering a lot of rounds in Africa and other Latin American Mm -hmm. countries that I hadn't heard from before. You always hear about Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, but it was El Salvador, you know, like it was cool to see the spread, which will diversify the pool. I'm just a little worried that as venture contracts after its last cycle, that we're going to see some of those less deep areas of venture activity evaporate. And I'm just hoping that people don't lose the momentum in the meantime. I want to grab the conversation and pull it back to AI. But before we do that, a very short break, and then we're back with Aileen Lee. We talked about how ZERP and SaaS and the move to the cloud powered the enterprise boom in the last cycle. Tons of fun. I love myself a SaaS S1. I hope we get a bunch of those this year. But when we look ahead, I'm thinking that AI, back to what you said about that going to help build more particular software for different categories, I wonder if the AI technology of today is going to be the driver of the return to consumer, because it does seem that there's a lot of stuff out there that regular folks are very excited about in the AI world and want to use. So maybe AI could be the catalyst for the pendulum swing back to consumer. And again, as kind of like a technology history nerd, when you think about it, the iPhone is less than 20 years old. Like It's kind of amazing how much our world has changed in 20 years. Yes. I think the iPhone created this incredible consumerization of all kinds of software because people got used to something that's basically so fast, so powerful, can, can basically figure out anything. And, like There's no latency. And then they went to work and they were like, God, why do I have to use this shitty software? <laughs> right? And so it just like, it created this incredible demand. And I think as everyday consumers for all kinds of tasks are using ChatGPT and other AI products, they're going to go to work, but also whether it's booking travel or 
learning stuff for school. Like they're going to say like, I use this other super wizzy thing with AI. I want everything that I use to have AI in it. So I think the landscape of companies and what they do and how they work 10 years from now is going to be as dramatic as the past 10 years have been. Well, your first set of unicorns, only one became a super unicorn, right? And that was Facebook. Yep. And looking ahead, your prediction for the first super unicorn of the decade is open AI. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's probably not such a wild right. guess. <laughs> well, no, not at all. I mean, I think we all uh, would agree with you there. But do you think that this is really going to be a lasting trend? I mean, we have these hype cycles. We see like these bursts of investment in certain industries and then things sort of taper off. Do you think that's going to happen with AI or is this just, is this going to see some longevity? I think it's the evolution of software. You know, we had mainframe software and then we had mobile and cloud. And the next evolution is going to be basically everything's going to have AI in it. I mean, when you just think about everyday workers have to log into a terminal. Let's say if they do the same job for five years, every morning they log in, they have to click and then click and then click and then click and go to this one screen that they go to every single morning. That's not going to happen in the future. AI is going to take you exactly where you need to go. It's going to be able to predict both your individual behaviors and maybe also share with you the wisdom of the crowds of what other people at work are doing. Because it's like humans still perform so many rote tasks and the software is not actually learning in the background what your behaviors are. And it's completely capable of doing that. So this yields a very interesting question. Will AI in the future, and I know we're off the unicorn track here a little bit, but we all get excited <laughs> about this stuff and it's fun to talk yeah. about with the future. So will AI end up staying at the application level mm -hmm. or will it end up more at the operating system level, learning about my activities across all the applications that I use and therefore helping me not only get past rote tasks on a per application basis, but really accelerate my entire experience as a compute user? Oh, that's really, now, now we're in the creepy element of the, of the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited. I think people are going to try all kinds of things. And so some of it's going to get blocked by privacy, like well-founded privacy concerns and other things. But I definitely, I think there's going to be a ton of innovation and I'm all here for it. So then if that's the question, then here's what I want to know. Clearly, OpenAI is going to make it to $100 billion in value. It'll mm -hmm. hit that super unicorn level. It's already at 80 or 90 or whatever. Yeah. Is there room in the market for another foundation model company to hit a similar threshold, an Anthropic or a Mistral? It sounds like Anthropic is very close. Wow. So I think there will be multiple. Okay. I mean, Marianne, to your point, Meta was the only company that got there within 10 years. But then basically after our analysis, three more companies in that data set became super unicorns. So basically four out of 39, which is mm. more than 10%. So if you think about 539, will 10% of them become super unicorns? That would be kind of insane. That would be but crazy. that would be a lot. I did, you know, I was looking at the Fortune 500 list and it's less than 10% tech companies. So when you think about if we are living through a new industrial revolution powered by new software, all the leading companies in every sector, oil and gas, education, healthcare, will become, they will basically potentially be disrupted by tech native companies in the next decade or two. Yeah. Is the Fortune 500 ranking based on market cap or revenue? I don't Good question. think it's revenue. I forget because I, I was going to vet that on a couple different things. I will look into that okay. and I will put it in the show Me notes, too. everybody. Don't worry. I do think it's a very good point, though. I wonder what the natural resting point for an economy that's developing should be in terms of the ratio of its companies that are the most valuable or biggest should be from tech. I think at least a quarter would be what you would hope for. It seems like, don't you think 10% seems too low? It seems much lower than I would have expected. Yeah. And, and this is in the United States where there's like more 
tech companies and I mean, all the trillion dollar tech companies are here, you know? Well, another interesting, when I was looking at this Fortune 500 thing, it seemed like the two biggest places where they are based are California and New York. And so I thought that was another interesting thing about how much New York grew mm-hmm. as a unicorn hub in the past 10 years. That is interesting. It did quite well. It kind of blew me away. 19% of unicorns are based in New York. In the world's worst city too. I mean, <laughs> hot damn. As a person from New Jersey, I would not agree with you. But, you know, there are a lot of people in San Francisco who are fighting to try and regain a lot of San Francisco's lost glory. And I hope this is fodder for them to realize, like, this is at risk. If we don't clean up San Francisco, we're going to lose more unicorns. And we have a window because of AI, because the most valuable AI companies are based in San Francisco. If they can keep them in San Francisco and people go back to work, you have this cross-pollination of people meeting each other. So I think that's a shot for San Francisco, but we got to get it together. Well, I mean, okay. I have to say, what is wrong with more unicorns not being based in San Francisco though, right? Nothing. I mean, I think it's great. I was so excited. Like, it was all San Francisco last time. And then the next biggest city only had three. And then there was like one in another city. And now there are a bunch of cities that have more than 10. So I think that's super exciting. And kind of to the earlier conversation about kind of the democratization mm-hmm. of tech. I think it's very exciting. I just love the idea of unicorns being spread out all over the country and in all sorts of different parts of the U.S., different states. But, you know, I hear you like San Francisco was kind of in Silicon Valley, really. Yes. That was the place to be if you wanted to grow your startup and raise money. It was always Silicon Valley. And then... I remember the startup migration to San Francisco started taking place around that time, right? Early like 2010, 11 is, is when they started moving more up to San Francisco. And then I think COVID changed things a lot too, right? Where anybody could be anywhere. So I just find it really interesting. I, I Don't get me wrong. I love San Francisco and I know it always will be like probably the base for most startups and unicorns, but I also love the idea of more of them being based in other places. But I guess we can, if we could shift really. No, 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 no. I have to jump in on that. So, okay. Absolutely. We are not leaving that there. I moved to San Francisco in 2012, I think it was. So right when the whole tech world was shifting up the peninsula to San Francisco. And I lived there until I was pulled away by my lovely spouse and now live on the East Coast. But I view myself as a temporary export to the East Coast and a West Coast child at heart. Even though I'm from Oregon originally, San Francisco is my spiritual and, and heart home, if you will. And so I'm happy to share and let other places have a unicorn or two, as long as the center of gravity remains exactly where it should, which is somewhere on Van Ness near my old dive bar. And it likely will, Alex. It likely will. Don't worry. But, you know, it's okay to have a little spread the wealth, spread the wealth. I mean, Austin's doing fine. We all know that. We can have both. We can have both. Yes. We can have both. We can have both. Absolutely. But the cross-pollination that Alien's arguing about does require a certain density to have critical mass. And so I guess maybe the right question is, SF won't lose that. New York has it. Will there be another place in the States, thinking in this in a U.S. context, where we see a similar amount of frission? Apart from the Boston area, not sure, frankly. Yeah. I can't think of anywhere offhand. I mean, there's a lot of cool tech hubs like Atlanta and Pittsburgh that are unexpected and people don't always talk about, but I can't see any necessarily, you know, reaching that level. I'll add though, like a couple of our most successful portfolio companies are not based in either. One, Guild based in Denver, Drata based in San Diego. And those are growing hubs with amazing talent. Exactly. Yeah. But um, so I'm excited also, I just want to talk a little bit about VC firms, right? Okay. Right now we've got over 2,500 today compared to about 
850 in 2013. That's not a surprise, not at all. But it feels like we're going to start seeing this number go down. We're, we're seeing closures. We're seeing shrinkage in the industry. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think it's going to shrink that much. You know, the industry has gotten really big and much more specialized. And now there's more pre-seed firms. And when we started in 2013 being a seed fund, there were very few. And now there's more seed funds. So I'm fortunate to have been apprenticed in venture where I kind of grew up at Kleiner and I learned a lot from working with really smart, experienced partners about how to do diligence, how to make investment decisions, how to be a great board member, how to deliver what we call like a post-investment service to founders and teams. So a lot of people joined the industry pretty quickly and didn't have the chance to get that training. I'm excited for venture investors to unfortunately have lived through this cycle and to figure out more about what the job is about. Also, we've added a lot of diversity to the industry, which I think is also really great. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that those people stay and are very successful and that we get back to doing a great job for founders. All right. So I want to close off with actually a cowboy question, if I can. Yeah. So I was looking back through the history of your funds, 40 million for the first one, 55 million for the second, just over 90 for the third, and then comes fund four and also your first opportunity fund for a combined 260. Now, that is not a pile of money in venture capital terms. There are larger funds, but certainly shows progression. And I would say a surprising amount of capital growth during this period in which many other firms are contracting. So why are you raising more money now? And what does that tell us about what you think about what's going to happen in the next couple of years? I mean, relative to the universe of venture firms, we are pretty small potatoes. <laughs> and you probably heard the phrase, like your fund size is your strategy. Yep. So I would say we're actually quite disciplined when it comes to our seed fund is 140 and we'll probably keep it that size, which is relatively small for venture funds. And that's because we don't, you know, we're a curated fund. We're not a volume shop and we're not an AUM shop, as people call it, like aggregating assets under management. We don't make a ton of investments every year, but we kind of put all of our energy behind the companies that we do commit to. And we're staying seed focused instead of kind of changing our mandate and doing multi-stages. So the seed rounds got bigger. And partially it was because venture firms got bigger. The people who do A's no longer want to write a four or six million dollar A check, right? They'd rather write a 15 or a 25 million dollar A check. And then they also, a lot of them will hang back and wait for the B. Yep. And so a lot of seed stage companies did wind up having, and I think that's probably going to stick. And I think seeds will come down a little bit, but they need to raise a little bit more so that they can actually get to a place where an A person is going to say, this has got the right traction and is de-risked enough for me to want to do it versus waiting for the B. And so we sized up a little bit partially because as our nose has gotten a little bit more confident, we still co-invest a ton and we love to co-invest with people. We're not sharp elbowed and say like, we want the whole round. We'd much rather partner with people. That's kind of our, our jam. But we have gone up a little bit in ownership, but also just to adjust to the new environment and seeds getting bigger. Seeds getting bigger. And also the way this was explained to me recently was that, you know, seed valuations can only fall so far until the implied dilution from a reasonable size seed round becomes so oppressive that it's not fair. And so there's almost like a floor on seed valuations given median investment amounts. So I'm sympathetic to that. It's funny, you know, when I started at Kleiner, A's used to be $4 million. Oh, yeah. And it was very common for founders to sell a third of their company in their first wow. round. Yep. One so third. things have changed a lot. 
That's just nuts. Yeah. Is that why you used to hear about venture capitalists, you know, like with their fleet of private jets? And now when I see venture capitalists on Twitter, they're in like an Uber, like X. Is that, oh, is that what's changed? Really? That's marketing. <laughs> no, I mean, no, you no, saw no. the I just... number of how much more fee income was generated during the boom times. All right. We got to call it there. Aileen, thank you again for coming on the show. An absolute treat. Folks, if you haven't seen it, her massive post from her firm is on TechCrunch.com. Aileen, for folks who want more from you, where can they find you on the great wild internet? We are at cowboy.vc. You can find us on X, you can find us on LinkedIn, but thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to chat with you. I admire and appreciate you so much. We are so happy to have you. Thank you. Yeah. And for everyone else, Equity will be back Friday morning. As always, this is a special episode we're bringing to you right when the data dropped. So don't worry, nothing's changing. Our roundup will occur as always. In the meantime, if you want more from us, we are Equity Pot on X and Threads. And we have two sister shows, Chain Reaction on all things crypto, and then Found, talking to founders about how they built what they did. All right, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 